0: The Serenity Prayer asks for the wisdom to know the difference. What does this mean and how does it happen? Welcome to episode 338 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Barbara, Barry, Dana, Elise, and Frida. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you Barbara, Barry, Dana, Elise, and Frida for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery.
1: Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life.
0: My name is Spencer, and I am your host today, and joining me today is Esther. Welcome, Esther.
1: Thanks, Spencer. It's great to be here.
0: We wanted to start with a reading. You chose one from Hope for Today.
1: Yes. It's the 4th of June, and it's on wisdom. All of the Alanon tools I have learned and used have pointed me down the path to gaining wisdom. For me, wisdom means knowing when to stop and listen to myself and to my higher power rather than rushing into a decision or action. I used to think I always had to do something and that waiting was a waste of time. Now I know God speaks to me while I'm waiting. Wisdom means being patient with myself and others. I used to blame myself for everything. Now I can practice the slogan, think. Maybe I don't need to be responsible for this situation. Maybe this other person doesn't need to be responsible for it either. Maybe we are all doing the best we can with what we know right now. Wisdom means knowing I can't live life in isolation. I need others. I need the love of other humans who make mistakes, understand my being human, and still love me. I also need the love and guidance of the God who created me. He is always with me and when I call on him, he will answer. Wisdom means learning to mime the diamonds hidden in my problems. I used to waste precious time being depressed about how alone and unloved I was. I was blind to everything beautiful around me and ungrateful for my blessings. Now when life hands me rocks, I use the program to polish them into valuable gems. Thought for the day. Wisdom is the fruit of working the Al-Anon program. And the quote from courage to be me is when we ask for wisdom, we are asking God to share special knowledge with
0: us. You want to say a few words about why you picked that one?
1: Yeah, I find that increasingly as I get deeper into my still relatively new recovery that I'm finding that wisdom has a broader meaning than what it did when I first came into the program. And I find the reading helpful because it reminds me all of the different places and times in my life that I can actually use the slogans and all of the teachings of the things that I hear in meetings every week to really pause and be a more considered person in how I actually behave in my everyday life. I thought I'd start with a definition of wisdom because I like the part of the serenity prayer wisdom to know the difference in how it fits in the serenity prayer, but also how it applies in my broader life and more broadly to my recovery that aren't necessarily obvious straight away to me when I come into the program, hearing the serenity prayer every week.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, how about yourself?
0: I like that it gives examples. This one seems key. For me, wisdom means knowing when to stop and listen to myself and my higher power rather than rushing into a decision or action. A huge part of wisdom is being able to stop for a moment, being able to consider. Being wise doesn't mean that I always know the right thing right away. It means in part that I know when I don't know. The serenity prayer challenges us to ask for the wisdom to know the difference between the things we cannot change and the things that, that we can. <laughs> to me, that's a huge part of recovery because I don't know about you. When I came into recovery I was trying to change a whole lot of things that were not mine, that I did not have the power to do anything about. And as a result, I was ignoring the the things that I actually could do something about.
1: Yeah, I relate to that very much as well. I think I came into recovery really kicking and screaming in a metaphorical sense. Mostly I was really misguided about, the extent of my power over things that I definitely know now I did not have power over. I still think that in one sense, one of the biggest markers of my growth is knowing what I don't know still in the sense that I'm now recognizing that when I have a particular kind of week, I don't necessarily have the wisdom to know the difference (laughs) between things that I can and can't change. I feel that having the ability to reflect on even the previous hour and be able to actually grow from that and not necessarily be punishing to myself about it is part of wisdom to know the difference for me. I love that I'm seeing these nuances in things I can and can't change where before everything felt Well, first of all, everything felt like I could change everything, which of course is untrue. And then I thought, okay, I have to accept that there are things I can't change. And for a while, I thought it was just the alcoholic. And that for me was what I thought I was coming into recovery for. Once I figured out I couldn't fix the alcoholic, my next step was to think, okay, courage to change the things I can. Okay. I just automatically thought I knew the things that I could change. And I thought it was everything else except for the alcoholic and now I'm learning that this is very much practicing this principle in all my affairs. There are lots of situations in my life in which I need wisdom to know the difference between things I can and can't change and between other things as well. Yeah.
0: So you sent a couple other readings that might uh, prompt conversation, and I like this one. Also from Hope for Today, October 18th. The first sentence, I think we both said that the guidance embodied in the serenity prayer was a foreign concept when I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting. And then it continues, in the serenity prayer, I ask my higher power to grant me the wisdom to know the difference between the things I cannot change and the things I can. Before Al-Anon, I was unable to distinguish between the two. In fact, I think I had them absolutely backwards, often struggling to manage events that were beyond my ability to influence, let alone control. Such behavior usually led to mental, physical, and emotional fatigue, as well as feelings of depression, failure, and worthlessness. For me, it was not, yeah, there was some depression, failure, and worthlessness. For me, it was anger, frustration, and a sense of failure also, because I was trying to do things and they were not having any effect. I would say the first bit of wisdom that I got from this program, which... My higher power definitely speaks to me in in the rooms, through other people. That's the way I I most often hear that voice, which is one of the reasons I need to keep going to meetings besides Step 12 carrying the, the message. One of the very first things I heard was let go. The slogan was let go and let God. And I wasn't sure about the God part, so I thought I can at least let go of trying to control my loved one's drinking, let go of the need to try to control. I think that was something I could change, maybe. And I know I've said this many times, but at that time I had one of my first cell phones, maybe my first cell phone, and it had a space for one line of text at the bottom of the display. It had a little display that was about the the size of the frame of my glasses. And I could put one line of text in, and I put let go in. So that every time I opened up the phone, it was a flip phone. Yeah, so it was my second cell phone. <laughs> that's how long ago it was. And that's how slow I was to adopt technology. Every time I opened the phone, it would say, let go. And I needed that reminder that often, sometimes more often. That was a pretty blunt instrument in terms of wisdom to know the difference. But it got me, at least in a practice of starting to understand that there were things that I couldn't and shouldn't try to influence. How about you?
1: Yeah. The blunt tool is something I really, really relate to. And the slogans for me are my blunt tool at the moment. I have printed out all of the slogans that I know and put them up. On my left hand side of my home office, so that I can turn to look at them when I need some wisdom to know the difference. That has actually come from, in part, conversations with my sponsor, which I find really helpful for this because she's the one that takes me out of my head when I'm overcomplicating things and when I'm trying to force solutions. And my solutions are always the most convoluted, complex, multi layered. Possible things. And sometimes all she says to me is step one. She has these kinds of reminders for me. When my loved one had a relapse and I was thinking about how my response was better than it would have been before I was in recovery, but I was still very sad and grappling with all these feelings, the first thing she said to me, other than, of course, being compassionate and and being a very kind sponsor as, as she is, the first thing she said to me was, Step one. And for me, step one is one of those blunt tools. It's just don't forget you're powerless. (laughs) And I really have to go back to that with situations where my emotions are overcoming me and things just feel overwhelming and difficult. And I'm either in grief or in rage or whatever it is. Those are the moments when maybe not reading an entire reading from Hope for Today or Courage to Change, but rather just saying those few words really is so essential for me. And it does allow me to stand back for a second and see what I'm actually doing a little bit more clearly. The the slogan in a way that sums all of what I'm describing up is actually keep it simple. And keep it simple is a really helpful thing for me when I'm having trouble finding wisdom to know the difference. If I just go back to basics Go back to the first things I heard when I came into the rooms. They're as useful to me now as they were on that day. And I will hear new wisdom in those things each time I hear them.
0: I think that whatever small tool it is we pick up, however blunt it might be, however small it might be, however applicable it might be to the particular situation, if it gets me to pause... It's first job is to get me to pause. So if I can remember, let go. If I can remember, keep it simple. If I can remember, just pause. And one of the members of my step study group actually got a little pause button tattooed on her wrist. So that when she's in a situation that she's about to react, or maybe she is reacting, she can look down and say, oh, pause. And actually touch that pause button. I know that, that, for example, in character defects, in my impatience, which I'm still struggling with, I think I'm a lot better than I used to be. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. But my goal with any character defect is first to recognize that it reared up after the fact and to bring that recognition closer and closer to the occurrence. Until it starts to happen at the same time. so I'll I'll open my mouth and say something impatient. Come on, get on with it. Or I'll interrupt somebody who I think is just going on too long. Because I know what they're trying to say. And I don't need to hear the rest of it. And I'll recognize it in that moment. And I can cut myself off. The goal is to recognize the feeling that is leading me to that reaction and be able to pause before the reaction. And so anything that reminds me to pause can be helpful, whether it's directly about the thing at the moment or not. I don't know if you want to say more about serenity prayer, or if we want to move on to uh, examples of when we want to know, when we need to know, when we pray for the wisdom to know the difference.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to to move on if you are.
0: Sure. So you gave me a nice list and I see you've really filled it out here. This is wonderful. And, And I love this. You said, when do I need, where do I need to pray for the wisdom to know the difference between dualisms that sometimes appear to be the same? Your first one here is assertiveness and arrogance. I want to interject that possibly irrelevant thing here. Yesterday I was working a crossword puzzle, and this one, the clue was something like, what a woman who is more assertive is often called, as opposed to a man who is just more assertive. And the answer was sassier. And I was like, oh God, that is so true. Why can't we just use the word assertive? I don't know if that's not really relevant, but it just it came to my mind, and I thought you might enjoy it. <laughs>
1: I did enjoy that and actually it does speak to something that happened to me at the end of, at the end of last calendar year and also at the end of last academic year because our academic year is the same as our calendar year, basically. I got some course feedback from a student and it was anonymous feedback so they could say whatever they wanted. One of the things that a student said was at the beginning of the semester, I thought that she was blunt and unforgiving. But then actually, as the semester progressed, it seemed like she was pretty cool or whatever came afterwards. And I remember, of course, first of all, hearing only the negative feedback and not being able to digest the thing that came afterward, which was they realized I wasn't so bad after all. But it really did speak to the, would a male lecturer have gotten that feedback? Blunt and unforgiving because I asserted rules, I'm not sure. But it really struck me that in in some senses, I could take that actually as a compliment <laughs> because, you know, if blunt and unforgiving means that I established boundaries with students right at the beginning and then showed them that I was flexible once those were established, then actually I think I've done what I've set out to do in a way.
0: Sounds very program.
1: Yeah, but it, I did have to go take that one to my sponsor.
0: I've always had trouble with feedback. Sometimes that envelope with the f- the feedback when I was teaching, that envelope would sit for a long time mm. unopened. Me too. Because I just didn't want. <laughs> and actually, I'm still processing some feedback I got about the last episode that was um, negative. I'm not including any of the feedback on that episode in this one because uh, I need to let that settle.
1: Something that I have noticed recently is that finding the wisdom to know the difference between standing up for my principles and values on the one hand and coming across as, or perhaps even actually being arrogant without knowing it on the other is a blurry line. And I'm not always sure when I'm crossing it or if I'm crossing it. I feel that at the beginning of, or in the earliest part of my recovery, I really started by dialing back. What I perceive to be my character defects, which are that I speak too soon, too reactively, that I'm impatient, that perhaps I speak too openly in the wrong contexts and it comes across as blunt and unforgiving. What I need to do is to learn how to essentially find some kind of filter, but not through what I used to think I had to do, which was to really, quote, control myself, because that never worked. When I tried to control myself, I just found myself feeling constantly like I was censoring myself. And for me, when I'm assertive and standing up for what I believe, when I do it appropriately and when I do it with the principles of program, it's very difficult to describe what happens other than I feel a lot less tension and I actually feel lighter when I'm doing it and I don't have that icky feeling afterward where I regret the things that I said, I actually feel like I, I did right by myself and I didn't necessarily hurt anybody else, or at least as far as I could tell, I didn't hurt anybody else when I was doing that. But sometimes it's tricky, and one of the reasons it's tricky is because I'm working in a space where sometimes I might be the only one in the room standing my ground on certain principles And so I'm not sure in those moments whether people's reactions to me something that I should be perhaps absorbing and maybe I should stand down and maybe I'm being arrogant by arguing my position or whether in fact I should continue to stand my ground and argue my position even if I am the only one in the room with that perspective at this moment. What about you?
0: There was something you said back there that I need to, to pick back up. You talked about that icky feeling. And to me, as I said earlier, that desire to move the moment of recognition earlier and earlier until it comes before the the event. I think that icky feeling and I and I I don't know exactly what it feels like to you, but I, I know the feeling. Like, oh my god, I just really screwed up. I just Really stuck myself out there in in a bad way, feeling, and that I need to take that as a message, a signal from my higher power. Hey, pay attention here it's one of the ways that wisdom comes assertiveness, bossiness, I struggle struggles is a hard word here i don't know if it's really struggle but one of the one of the things that i continue to need to ask for help with is walking that line at my job i'm a leader i've been at this company since basically the beginning a few months after the beginning i'm one of four people who were there at that time out of now 400. So I have a lot of understanding and knowledge about the mission and, and how we do it at the same time. I need, I absolutely need to leave space for other people's ideas, for other people's input, for, for other people to reach that same understanding, because I'm not going to be, Doing this forever. I actually have a date when I might not be doing it anymore, uh, which is still a few years off. I said to my boss last year when I went in for my annual review, I said, I need to tell you that I am looking at retirement in probably four years. Uh, And he looked at me and he said, Yeah, I think I need to start doing some succession planning (laughs) Uh, because there are a number of us who are at that level of maturity and we have a lot of knowledge between us. So how do I exhibit that? How do I transfer that? How do I assert that while at the same time being open to change, being open to new ideas? There's a member of my team that our personalities just don't mesh. And we both recognize this We've had a conversation about it, one of those difficult conversations. So when this person speaks up with an idea and when my first mental reaction is, oh, here we go again, I'm able to start to continue to listen rather than stopping it. No, we're not going there today. No, I need to listen. I need to to let him say his piece. So that's what comes up for me when I think about assertiveness, arrogance, bossiness, know-it-allism. Back to you, Esther. Eh?
1: Yeah. And know-it-allism, I had to chuckle when I heard you say that. I think I suffer from know-it-allism sometimes as well. The reason I thought about arrogance recently was because it was the topic at one of our meetings recently, one of our Al-Anon meetings. I loved it so much because it really, it it asked of me to almost do a fourth step on the spot and be like, okay, this is a thing I don't think that I have an issue with. And then by the end of the meeting, of course, I go away thinking, oh yeah, no, I, I have an issue with this thing, actually. I might have to go and think about that. I didn't think arrogance applied to me. I don't know why. I just, I guess it was one of those things where I attributed it to a type of person and I assumed that I was not that type. So I just allowed myself to continue believing that I'm not capable of arrogance. I suppose almost a stereotype, but I can be arrogant. And what I realize is that the arrogance kicks in at the moments when I am feeling the most powerless, when I am feeling the most fearful, when I am feeling the most insecure. And it's essentially a way, it's like a strategy that kicks in for me where I'm trying to exercise self-will again. An example that I have of that is I'm currently being audited at work for certain things. And this audit was, they're calling it random. So I was one of the randomly selected people to be audited for something in particular. It came on the back of I I won't say another audit, but something that's very similar to that Or where I thought I'd already passed the process and here I am having to do it again really soon afterward. There were things in that audit that were asked of me that I fundamentally disagreed with at a deep philosophical level of what the purpose of my job is. So it wasn't just that I felt it would give me more work and I didn't want to do more work. It was actually that I think I'm doing a disservice by doing the things you're asking of me. I thought, okay, I have a supportive manager. I can raise this in our staff meeting. And I did, but because I'm still learning how to express myself in the say what you mean, don't say it mean (laughs) territory. And also when I'm processing the thing that's bringing up feelings in me, in that moment that I'm processing it and my blood might be boiling is actually not the right moment to be raising that verbally with my manager. I actually could be pausing during the meeting, waiting for the meeting to finish, going away, reflecting on it, and perhaps coming back. But instead, within two minutes of the issue first being raised, I was firing, I was just absolutely firing at all levels. I was really not using the slogan, think, <laughs> Yeah. Guns blazing. That's the expression I was trying to get at there. And it was interesting because really what I realized I was doing was trying to fight something that is being imposed from such a higher place, way up the hierarchy, nothing my manager has any power over either, that me trying to fight that and me trying to really exert my self-will on that is really just putting my foot down, treading water, or it's just hitting my head against a brick wall, using whatever your favourite metaphor is there. There might be ways where I can raise it with people up the communication channels in the hierarchy, but assuming that I can, as a single person, just go ahead and have a bit of a verbal yell about it and think that's going to help this larger problem is pretty futile. I realized going away afterward that that was my way of coping with the fear and insecurity of the fact that I was so powerless over this big shift. I was so unable to do anything about the bigger problem that I felt like I was objecting to. I can't will that whole system to change. But there are things that I could perhaps stand up for with regard to how i do my own work and what my side of the street looks like, I can be assertive and say, actually, what you're asking me to do is unacceptable to me in my workspace. I don't know what the consequences of that refusal is yet, but I'm willing to try because I believe in it. And I think for me that's a reflection of the wisdom to know the difference between when my values matter enough for me to do that and when I actually need to let them go. I can't single handedly fight the whole system, but I have set a meeting with the permission of my manager with someone above my manager. And I'm very fortunate. I have support. And she said to me, The only thing I'm concerned about is that you're going to exert a whole bunch of energy on something with very little reward at the other end. Mm-hmm. So she said, I support you if you want to do that. And I will be interested to see what the result is because it would actually be helpful for me as well to see who is handing down the, these decisions that. I'm also powerless over, <laughs> but I would caution you to just look at whether you feel it's worth it for you. So she's essentially doing a, how important is it for me?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: which is pretty wonderful.
0: Uh, a couple of thoughts come to me. One is when I find myself in a situation where there are, we'll say, rules, guidelines, whatever imposed on me that. I don't agree with, that I don't think are the best or even sometimes maybe the right way to go. But as you say, I don't have a choice. The wisdom to know the difference, I think, asks me to consider in what ways can I act within these strictures that are consistent with what I believe is right or effective, depending on the context. I might be asked to do something that I feel is just freaking busy work that is not moving us towards any goal. And I think that the program also asks me to consider that the person who's asking me to do this, the system that's asking me to do this probably has a reason that makes sense in their context. And if I can take the time to understand their context, we might be able to come to a better way of working that is actually for both of us. That's hard work. It's not reactive. It's not knee-jerk. It's not, I'm writing you're wrong. And to move out of that I'm writing you're wrong space is sometimes really hard. You mentioned a slogan you wrote, Think Times Three, and I don't think I've heard that one. You want to tell me what you meant by that, Esther?
1: Sure. One of the slogans as I've seen it, is think, think, think. And it has a comma in between each.
0: The comma is a pause, right?
1: Indeed. It was actually one of those slogans that when I saw it, it was one of the ones that my eyes just skirted over and I ignored for the longest time because it didn't really make any sense to me, particularly because at the beginning of recovery, I thought that everything I was doing was to stop myself from thinking because <laughs> I was doing too much thinking. <laughs> then at one meeting one one time, somebody chose that slogan as the theme around which we were having our discussion that evening. It was so amazing how those three words, which are the same word, <laughs> the depth that people were able to get out of that slogan in their sharing was just mind-blowing to me. And I remember finally understanding, it's not about overthinking, which is the problem that I have that causes me a lot of issues in everyday life. It's quite the opposite in a way. It is thinking over time with pauses, just essentially being a more considered person and in a way doing the opposite of what my default is, which is to actually jump in the pauses. If there's gaps in dinner table conversation in a past version of me, I would just be filling all the gaps. That was just my modus operandi. And it actually caused me conflict with partners because they felt that I dominated conversation when I did that. And what I thought I was doing was smoothing things over and making things more socially easy. So it was just amazing how different the perception of my inability to pause was between myself and other people. But think, think, think is for me very useful at times when, like the issue I was describing, where there's a thing that I want to escalate at work, but I'm not sure yet whether it's going to be so painful that it's going to eat up all my energy and time and amount to very little. I'm not sure whether that's worth it for me. And think, think, think actually forces me to split the process up into increments in a way that I wouldn't typically do. And in fact, I don't know whether this was higher power looking out for me or, or something, but there were actually quite a few days between when I sent the first email about this and when I received the first response about it, on each of those days, I did different thinking. <laughs> and it was amazing, the journey from the initial reaction I had to a few days later. And the, the sort of the distance I traveled in those few days from taking pauses between the thinking and thinking about other things for a while, not just that thing, not obsessing. So that for me is where I feel like if I can use that slogan, I'm less likely to make a decision that I'm going to regret tomorrow and I'm less likely to send an email that I'm going to feel embarrassed about and I'm not going to want to open the email that I get back in response because I'm going to be like, what was I thinking when I sent that? I actually spoke to my sponsor about this a little bit. One of the things that I said to her was, I think that sleep deprivation contributed very greatly to my initial reaction that I would have probably had the capacity to pause much more effectively if I had not been sleep deprived. And I think I I underestimate the extent to which this kind of thing affects how I engage at work. I was running on two hours sleep and I wanted to start. Yeah. (laughs) And I was teaching for five hours back to back, running on two hours sleep. And I thought, I don't even remember some of that day. It's completely unreasonable for me to expect of myself that I could make a rational decision in that state. So having a few days off (laughs) was very important. Initially, I said to a fellow member today, 25% of the actions that I took that day were probably influenced by my sleep deprivation. And then I said, who am I kidding? It was probably 75%, really, if I look at it. Because that's like being drunk. That degree of sleep deprivation is like being drunk. So again, it goes back to the sort of, yeah, let it begin with me. If I'm not if I'm not sleeping enough, I can't deal with these little problems or these big problems.
0: No kidding. I was thinking as you were talking about that, the thing that I have said, I used to be able to do that. I used to be able to stay up all night and function the next day, as we called it, pull an all-nighter. And then I thought, I used to think I could do that. There's a difference, isn't there?
1: There certainly is.
0: Yeah. Thinking back to when I was in college, I was taking a physics course, and the professor gave us a 24-hour take-home exam, and we were supposed to record when we started and when we finished, and they had to... You know, be 24 hours or less apart, which, of course, encouraged staying up all night because I got 24 clock hours. I don't have 24 work hours. And I'm like, what was that culture saying to me that that culture was saying, don't take care of yourself. It's more important to get your work done than to, than to take care of yourself. Which brings me to the next item here, the wisdom to know the difference between something that is important and something that is urgent. I have heard the expression, you probably have too, that urgent things are seldom important and important things are seldom urgent. And sometimes important things are urgent and sometimes urgent things are important. And I guess that's encapsulated there. But I, I too have this feeling like, yeah, I'm working on this big important thing, but I don't really need to get it done today. Where is this other thing, oh, this is like a fire. I need to put it out right away. And having the clarity, the wisdom, if you will, to see, actually, I don't need to fix this thing today, or maybe I don't need to fix it. That's the other problem I have with being the know-it-all, being the guy who's been there for a long time, being the guy who understands everything, which is not true there was air quotes for those of you who are listening to the podcast is when we get a request to fix something, when we get a report and I'm in software, the system that I work on is a website that's used by people all over the world, 24 hours a day. Problems can come in at any time when I get one of those and I'm like, Oh yeah, wow, this is totally broke for this one person out of the, million people who are using the website on a given day, my first reaction, and I I use that word reaction deliberately, is drop everything and fix. Despite the fact that we actually have a set of guidelines for prioritizing this sort of thing, you talk about doing things that are on your B and C list while ignoring things on your A list. And that's what's happening there. I think another part of it for me sometimes is that oh, here's something I know how to fix, whereas this other big important thing, i still working to understand how we're going to do it, what we're going to do to address it. And so there's a little bit of, what's that P word? Procrastination in there as well. How does this exhibit for you?
1: Yeah, certainly through procrastination as well. Sometimes I use my B and C list to avoid doing the things on my A list very deliberately. I use the fact that I've gotten an email asking me to deal with some menial small things that require time but not that particular kind of brain work to be like, oh, this person's asked this thing of me, so I'd better go and deal with that right now, even though I actually bracketed this part of my day off for something that is of significance to me and allows me to further my goals. Perhaps there's some people-pleasing Things at work there. I really feel that it's imperative that people think that I'm efficient and that I do my work really quickly and really well and that I don't leave them waiting. I feel there's almost a sense that comes from my childhood of being afraid of getting in trouble from the teacher that I still have, I think, which is interesting to think about. I I really feared as a kid the wrath of the school teacher. I was a people pleaser as a kid. It was really built into me. And I, I did everything I could to be the teacher's pet. It was like the thing I strove for. And I think I still do that without wanting to really believe that about myself because it's not a quality I love. On the flip side of that, I can use this as a positive because I know about myself that I work better when I have external accountability. So I can put things in place for myself with those A-list tasks that might include some external accountability that actually help me achieve them. It doesn't have to be a negative, really. I use, for example, groups of people, peers, to help motivate me to do certain things where we're all working on our own version of that thing to really help propel me into actually just sitting down and doing the task. But the people-pleasing side of things also, unfortunately, can be debilitating for example, I have a really big project at work that is taking up more years of my time than what I had hoped and that I'm very late to complete, many years late. And I'm fortunate that I'm not actually facing any concrete or material consequences for that in some senses, or at least not directly. But there are some consequences and I am the only one who feels those consequences because this is actually only hurting me that I'm not finishing this project. It's not hurting anybody else. And that makes it really difficult for me to sit down and do. It also feels really big. And sometimes that makes it feel back to that word unmanageable.
0: You have a bullet about busyness and unmanageability. I think that ties in here, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I actually... When I read that, I was like, okay, I see that busyness can be a certain kind of unmanageable. You say there's a good kind of busyness, variety and a full life. And then there's a bad kind of busyness, which is running and not really accomplishing anything. And sometimes they feel the same until at some point some clarity comes, some wisdom comes.
1: I've pretty much covered that one. Busyness and unmanageability... Yeah, I think I've probably.
0: Although I might want to hear the dog poop story.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I thought that would be enticing.
0: (laughs) I deal with that Um, on a daily basis sometimes, usually several (laughs) times a day.
1: I was enjoying my first busy week back at the sort of, I guess, the peak of busyness time of my working year. And uh, I, I was feeling, I was getting into the groove and I really enjoy a lot of my work that helps me know when busyness is good for me because I come home feeling like I've had perhaps a a full-on day but one that I feel satisfied with at the end of it. But on a given day, I was dealing with a lot of distressed people because of the pandemic situation affecting how my working life would look for them. I'm not expressing that very well, but I'm trying to be non-specific about the type of work I do. There were some distressed people I was dealing with and I was trying to be, I won't say I was trying. I was exercising my program really hard that day and really well. I think I was exercising compassion, but I was also putting down boundaries when a distressed person crosses the line to being abusive to me or abusive to my colleagues. I don't need to accept that. And I was able to To be the best version of myself for many hours that day, it was very emotionally exhausting. By the time I got to the end of the day, I hadn't managed to take any breaks and my back was very sore and I hadn't gone on the one walk that I'm allowing myself during our very strict lockdown here in Melbourne. It was late, but I decided, no, I need to take this walk. So it was very dark. I think this was almost a midnight walk at this point. This is before our current lockdown, which is curfew. I can't go out after 8pm at the moment, which is a pain for me because that's really when I was getting my walks in, but what am I going to do? But I was going on this midnight walk. I came home and I felt so refreshed and I felt, yes, that was exactly what I needed after that quite challenging, full-on day. And I had a scheduled video chat with my partner, my qualifier, who lives on the other side of the world to me. We're in a long-distance relationship. Before I got on the phone with my partner, I realized when I got to my front door that I had stepped in dog poop. And I realized this after I'd already smeared it all over my doormat (laughs) because it was completely dark. So I smelled it before I saw it, let's just say. It was one of those things where if it had happened on a Sunday after a full weekend or if it had happened at the beginning of the day, I would have just laughed and been like, oh, whatever, I'll deal with that later. But because it happened at the end of what was really a very overwhelming day for me and one where I couldn't fit anything else emotional in, I had exceeded my barrel, (laughs) I I'd exceeded my capacity to cope with more, it was really the straw that broke the camel's back. It's funny in hindsight, but like stepping in dog poop totally made me freak out at the end of that day because I was just totally unmanageable. And that was the one thing that really highlighted that to me because I was agitated. I was irritable. It was this very small thing that made me super mad. I actually ended up having to text my partner and say, And this is actually recovery speaking. I wouldn't have been able to do this in the past. I had to say, I actually think I can't talk tonight because I'm just not in a great state of mind. And I explained semi-humorously what had happened, but also that I was legitimately grumpy and would not be a good conversationalist that evening. In the past, I would have just gotten on the phone and then been really angry at my partner the entire time we were talking. So that was good. But the unmanageability for me, (laughs) the dog poop has become uh, the the sort of the symbol, the reminder, the lighthearted reminder for me that, yeah, if there's a really tiny thing that's making me unreasonably rageful, it's probably because I'm trying to do too much. It's probably because I'm juggling too much. It's probably because my busyness has crossed the line into unmanageability and I didn't have wisdom to know the difference <laughs> until I stepped in the dog poop. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the dog poop
0: story. Oh yeah. I can so connect with that, that little thing. It's happened to me so many times. <laughs> Not necessarily dog poop, but just some little thing that goes wrong that just, what the straw that broke the camel's back as, as the proverb has it, that highlights for me how unmanageable things have been, how stressed I am. And it happens more frequently in the last five months since we've been in this pandemic here in the U.S. There's a base level, a constant level of unmanageability in my life that everything then piles on top of. So I can deal with less crap than when I'm really balanced and serene. And this time is challenging me to maybe up my game in terms of practices that can help to give back some of that peace, that serenity, that balance, that the world is consistently pushing me away from the things that are going on in the world, in the country that they're not the way I want it to be and and I think everybody can relate to that, whatever it is I need to find ways to you said exercise, I love that word exercise, I need to exercise the tools that I have to reduce that base level of stress and anxiety and maybe here's where some wisdom comes in recognizing even in the middle of the day that things are piling up and that I need a break maybe I only need 10 or 15 minutes where I'm away from my desk, away from whatever it is that is currently driving me to recharge to discharge sometimes that's what it is I'm not into scream therapy, but sometimes it feels like that might be a a good idea. (laughs) Scream at the world instead of screaming at the people or the dog. I've done that a couple times, and he doesn't deserve it. He's just being a dog. But I remember one day, I don't remember what happened that day. I was all worked up about something. I was all wound up, and he was just being a dog. He was wanting attention sticking his nose in my crotch and all those things that dogs do. I just snapped. I yelled at him. I shoved him away because I just couldn't deal with it at that moment. And I'm sure he didn't understand because I I barely understood what was happening until it happened. I think for this one, for me, is wisdom to see it. Wisdom to understand when it's happening and when I want to, when I need to, relieve it take a break pause there's that pause again can usually tell when busyness crosses over into unmanageability when i notice myself feeling agitated crotchety and irritable yes when very small things make me mad i know i'm becoming unmanageable that is exactly it it totally is definitely that's where i lived before program that's where i lived all the time because it was this huge unmanageable thing in my life and Everything else built on top of that. Every small irritation built on top of that. And that's why I would scream at my kid when they spilled a teaspoon of milk on the table. They didn't deserve that. What they did didn't deserve that. It deserved, please be more careful and let's clean this up. Not, what the... You had several other readings you had suggested. Is there one that is good to close with here?
1: Sure. Maybe the one... From Courage to Change, October 10. It goes back to the kind of use of the serenity prayer version of Wisdom to Know the Difference. I can read that one. The road to my hometown wound along a steep hillside. As a child, I was often afraid that our car would swerve too widely and go over the edge. I used to take hold of the rear door handle and try to prevent this. I was too young to understand that my actions could not influence the path of the car. Yet I often take a similar approach to my adult fears and persist in futile actions. Al-Anon helps me accept what I cannot change and change what I can. Although I can't control the way alcoholism has affected my life, I can't control another person and I can't make life unfold according to my plans. I can admit my powerlessness and turn to my higher power for help. When I am the driver, the responsibility for steering clear of the road's edge is mine. It is up to me to take my recovery seriously, to work on my attitudes, to take care of my mind, body, and spirit, to make amends when I have done harm, in short, to change the things I can. Today's reminder, sometimes the only way I can determine what to accept and what to change is by trial and error. Mistakes can be opportunities to gain the wisdom to know the difference. And from one day at a time in Al-Anon... If a crisis arises or any problem baffles me, I hold it up to the light of the serenity prayer and extract its sting before it can hurt me. I love that quote.
0: (laughs) That's a great reading. You've chosen music for this episode. Could you introduce the first one?
1: Sure. Our first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at therecovery.show slash 338, is The Head and the Heart with Another Story. I chose this song because... I love the vibe that this band has in their songs overall. They have some sadness in their lyrics, but there's always hope, and I I really love that, and I've actually tried to cover and play some of these songs myself for my own enjoyment at home. But this particular song has lyrics that I relate to because it reminds me that despite my flaws and repetitive behaviours and messing up, that's okay. I'm still human, I'm imperfect, but that's part of being human and there's still hope. And one of the l- the lyrics that I like is, I see a world turning in on itself. Are we just like hungry wolves howling in the night? I don't want no music tonight. Can we go on like it once was? For me, that part speaks to the denial that I was trying to exercise when I was in the worst of the active alcoholic relationship. Mm. And then it says, poor boy lost his head. Everybody feels a little crazy, but we go on living with it. But the part of the song that talks about the hope is, I'll tell you one thing, we ain't going to change much. The sun still rises, even with the pain. I'll tell you one thing, we ain't going to change love. The sun still rises, even through the rain. Can we go on like it once was?
0: In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? Thinking back, I always have to think back and say, what went on in the last week or so? It's been two weeks. One of the things that I'm coming to acceptance about is that starting tonight, actually, I'm going into two weeks of quarantining before I go visit my parents to try to Assure all of us that I haven't been exposed. I'm not going to bring COVID into a household with three at-risk individuals to the best of my ability. I also, I don't know, is this one of these God winks or something? But local Slack channel, local techie Slack channel, somebody said, hey, this new filter mask that I've been working on is now available and the first like 100 orders will be fulfilled immediately. And I looked at it and I thought, this looks like something I want to try. It's a silicone mask. It's got N95 filters in it. And it's got a little fan so it doesn't get too hot inside. I think this might have been something that came out of a business school project or something. So I immediately put it in an order for it. It came yesterday. And now I can feel more secure as I'm. Driving through some hot spots on my way to visit my parents, that I'm going to be much less likely to pick up something on the way. So, there, I think that, I guess for me, illustrates acceptance of the way things are, acceptance of the knowing more what I can do, and really doing the things that I can to minimize the chance of bringing disease to these people that I love that would very likely die if they get it because of their immunocompromised state. So that's a big thing in my life right now, and I'm not looking forward to two weeks of not interacting um, in person with people, except my wife, who is also looking at two weeks of not interacting with people one of the things that i'm really going to miss that has been a lifeline i think for me emotionally during this time is an almost daily doggy play group that happens in in the neighborhood there are three of us who have dogs that we meet in a neighboring yard And the dogs play with each other, and we try to stand far enough away from each other to be safe. But sometimes the dog's leashes tangle or something, because we're not in a fenced yard. We're right by a street. And you end up getting closer, and I just think I can't afford to do that. I'm going to miss it. My dog's going to miss it. But it's it's what I have to do to keep the other people in my life safe. Those are the things that are on my mind right now. As I mentioned the last couple of weeks, my Sunday night meeting, which I'll be going to later today, we are, some of us, gathering with distance in a park on our Zoom meeting. And there are people in the meeting who are not at the park. But we get to at least see each other without a screen in the way, some of us. I didn't really understand until... I did it how much difference that made in feeling connected to the other people in the meeting. So we're developing ways of living with this thing that is not going to go away anytime soon. And that's also acceptance. I remember when we first shut down, it was like, we're going to shut down for three weeks and and then we'll be okay. And then it was, no, we're extending it another three weeks and now we're extending it another month. And, I don't, see, I don't see getting out of it anytime soon. Coming to acceptance of that is huge, really. This is the new way that my life is right now. I'm getting used to wearing a mask um, when I go out, which at the beginning was so weird. I felt like I couldn't talk. I had this thing over my mouth, so I couldn't talk. Which is just wrong. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not true. Wrong is a harsh word, but it's not true. And now it's definitely feeling more normal, which is shows adaptability that we are adaptable people. I'm trying to think about meetings. Meetings have been a respite. Meetings have been a time to hear the wisdom of the program in other people's voices and also at times to exercise my tolerance of people who maybe go on too long, like I'm doing right now. So I'll stop.
1: That's great. In my week, if there's one thing that's a big difference in my Alanon recovery, at least on the surface between what I'm doing now and what I was doing before the pandemic, it's that I go to many more meetings now and it's because I don't have a car, so traveling to meetings was a big mission before, and now I can just go to my desk. So that's very different. It's a positive side effect of a negative situation, let's say. These meetings have kept me balanced. They've kept me sane at times when I felt very anxious and fearful of what the future would bring, and they've been amazing because I also have gradually collected more phone numbers of more members since the pandemic happened and I use them. These are people with whom I can share my sort of innermost things that I would consider to be very shameful to share with other people, but I can do it and I know that I will get no judgment and I will get nothing but understanding and compassion And as a bonus, probably some experience, strength and hope. So that's pretty special. I'm really grateful for the members in my different meetings. And I love the topics in the meetings over the last week because they've been really out of left field for me. One of them was arrogance, which is why I talked about arrogance today. And the other one was gossip. I remember hearing... From my sponsor, that gossip is talking about somebody when they're not in the room with you. I remember thinking that's a pretty hardcore definition. If I want to aspire to not talk about people while they're not in the room with me, how do I make that work at work? There are all sorts of situations in which that seems impossible, actually. But I've started to experiment with people in my life with whom I think that the main foundation of our friendship, unfortunately, was probably speaking about other people when I really look at it carefully. And I'm experimenting with not responding to something they say with gossip, even if what they say is gossip. And that is interesting. It really strips away what the relationship that I have with that person, whatever that might be. And at the beginning, I didn't know how to do that without saying something like I don't want to gossip, but I also didn't want to make them feel bad. And I didn't want to turn it into me taking their inventory. So what I did one time that I think worked for me was I just listened to the person saying what they were saying, but I didn't contribute. I just listened. And then we moved on. And what was interesting was once we moved on, it was really great because my not contributing really just changed the tone and the direction of the conversation. It it just really highlighted to me that gossip actually isn't necessary to have a good conversation. And gossip, like arrogance, is one of those words that I didn't think applied to me and that I attributed to a stereotypical type of person that I didn't think I fit the profile of. Again, broadening the definition of arrogance, broadening the definition of gossip, these are both things that came up in my meetings this week that were helpful for me to remind myself of being a part of my recovery. When it's been coming to managing during the pandemic, there's been a lot of powerlessness, of course, to face. And I honestly don't know what my mental health would have looked like if this had happened before I came into a program of recovery. Or I have some sense of what it would look like and it wouldn't be pretty. There are so many things I am powerless over. Some of them are are very challenging and they really affect my life. For example, the person that I'm in a long distance relationship with, now it's not in our hands to choose when we visit each other because the borders are closed. So we can't see each other and we don't know when that's going to change. And there is nothing we can do about that. One thing we did do was, which was a, courage to change the things we could. We registered our relationship here, so that might help with immigration if there are exceptions for people who have a so-called immediate family, but they're really cracking down and reducing the number of people they're letting in. And actually, it's also an exit ban. I'm not even allowed to leave. That is some powerlessness. And we are also powerless over the future of finding a job in the same country and city, which was going to be difficult before the pandemic, and now it's off the Richter scale difficult. I also can't see my family who are interstate because my state is not allowed to go anywhere else in Australia because we're the ones with too much pandemic. (laughs) So I can't see my mother or my brother or my father at this time. And I live alone and that's okay. I like living alone. In fact, this is vastly preferable to a living situation where I would be stuck inside with flatmates that I didn't like or something.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. Yes.
1: Yeah. And I know people who are in that situation and I really, truly feel for them. But I also haven't touched another human for five months at all. I haven't had human touch in five or six months now, actually. And that is not healthy and that is not what we are built for as human beings. And I'm starting to really feel that in the first two to three months, I was very accepting and I thought, I'm okay. I'm doing quite well. I don't mind. I like being in my own company. After about three months of that, I started to really feel it. It's almost like an animalistic human need now. I I almost considered asking another friend of mine who lives alone, if she would be my, like my hug buddy, (laughs) just so that we had somebody to break the kind of complete isolation with. But Unfortunately, she's got immediate family living here that she's prioritizing, so that is pretty understandable. So that's a lot of powerlessness and there are no face-to-face meetings. I'll be interested to see what happens when we do go back to -to face-to-face meetings and will we ever hold hands and these sorts of things that we used to do. But while doing it on the screen is not the same, I will say that I do still feel connected and the way I primarily feel connected is through the fellowship of the program. I don't necessarily still feel connected at work, even though we have weekly meetings face-to-face on video conferencing. And that's not the fault of the people running those meetings. It's just not the same as incidentally running into someone in the corridor or having a quick chat to them over the coffee machine or whatever it might be. My manager actually opened up what she's calling virtual corridors so that we can drop in And encounter each other at random times. And I I love that idea. But of course, it's still not the same. But the fellowship is still providing a lot of grounding for me and keeping me sane and helping me not just survive, but actually also have a relatively pleasant existence, despite all of these things that are going on around us. Yeah. So that's been my week.
0: Thank you. We got a share from Marissa about recovery, isolation, dogs and puppies.
2: Hello Spencer and company. This is Marissa and I live in northern Montana. I just heard the episode about choosing love over fear with Julie and I'm forgetting the number. Boy, all your episodes are amazing but this one just really blew my mind. The humor of it, how much of my story was similar to Julie's and all the incredible topics. Oh my gosh. It just really hit me between the eyes in a positive way. I'm walking outside. I'm just coming back from the end of the road where I walk my dogs. And yes, that is dogs plural because two weeks ago, I just adopted a puppy, which was like the worst possible thing I could have ever done. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. And so when Julie and you were talking about acceptance and lack of control of just about everything, I thought, yeah, boy, I know that feeling. (laughs) I've got this little squirt who started out being super shy and timid and now has really opened up and become a really great dog. And she's four and a half months old and just has the energy of seven dogs. But she's also very sweet. This dog found me or chose me, whereas my old dog, who's eight, I chose her. And it's been a very different experience. But I will say that it's helped me to see how much I've changed and grown since when I got my old dog to when I got this puppy. I appreciated what you were saying about keeping your fourth step notes and things like that, which I have not done. But I mark my progress in other ways, like how I'm treating this puppy versus how I treated my now older dog. And boy, I've just really changed as a person. I'm just way less angry. I'm way less controlling I'm much more gentle yet firm, much more consistent. Yeah, even so, I really am marking and noting times when I get easily frustrated because the puppy is really good at not listening to what I want it to do, (laughs) especially when it's got some sort of nastiness in its mouth because it's teething, and so then I go to try to get it to release that thing, or and I have to chase it, and she's just bouncing away like I'm not going to do what you say, come and catch me. And I'm just sitting there with the steam coming out of my head. (laughs) So anyways, but it's a great metaphor because back in December, I moved from a larger town to this very small community that's very tight-knit and uh, have really struggled with accepting the people here. It's natural for all of us as humans to want to connect. And especially during this COVID time, it's been especially strange to be in this very small community where I've known very few people before the lockdowns occurred. So I felt very lonesome and very isolated. I want to thank you for putting all the Zoom information up on your website because it really helps a lot, even though I've actually missed all of them. (laughs) Although I've tried to put them in my calendar and stuff. But I have for quite a few years now been a regular on the 9 a.m. Eastern Time morning meeting on the phone bridge, the main line, which is now called the Unity Line. And boy, that has saved my bacon. And even back when I was living in the larger town earlier last year, just discovered some smaller town and more rural areas tend to have just a lot of dysfunction in their meetings. And it's very easy because there's not a lot of members for the meetings to be uh, dominated by one or two members. I've had that experience several times and I've been very shy to try to go to -to face-to-face meetings as a result. So I appreciate so much your podcast because it's been a godsend for me to have program talk and experiences in addition to the phone meetings since I very rarely get to a face-to-face meeting. So then the thing about the waiting I thought was so fantastic. And what I realized also with the reading that Julie read in the very beginning of the podcast was uh, the whole thing about dying alone. I have to say that has really shifted for me. It's happened in several ways. One is just making my serenity my number one absolute top of the list priority every day. And really stopping and pausing and asking myself, is this going to bring about peace and serenity in my life? Is this choice? Is this decision? Is this action? Is this waiting? When I ask that question, and how I ask it at times is a very simple way. I ask, is this the heart of the matter? When I really get in touch with my heart, which is also where I feel my higher power resides inside me. When I let my heart guide me, then I oftentimes will choose the most serene and peaceful choice. And so I never really feel alone. despite the fact that I've got furry friends. But, because I focus on that on uh, serenity as my top priority, it has brought me so much closer to higher power. I just don't feel that aloneness like I don't know, I feel satisfied and happy in my life. I don't have a long term romantic partner right now, and boy, that feels just great, <laughs> and I'm way okay with that, and I'm also okay if somebody comes along and it turns out to be that person. It's okay either way, so. I just thought that was such an amazing thing to realize when I was listening. And I thought, wow, that is huge progress for me that I have come to that point in my program and in my life. And then, yeah, the stuff with the waiting is kind of similar. It's When I allow things to happen instead of trying to push things to happen or force things to happen, then really great things happen. And sometimes it takes a long time. And case in point, in this small community, it's taken me quite a long time to start to make friends. And I'm still a little bit dubious about whether there's actually going to be even a friend group for me here because it's so tiny and folks, you know, are very set in their ways and different things. But I'm open to allowing that to be the case or not and finding acceptance one way or the other. And so it's really helped me a lot to just accept that, I guess, because when I'm in a larger town area, what I've realized is that it's much easier for me to isolate myself because there's just much more opportunity to stay anonymous, like when you go to stores and shops and stuff. And now in this super small community, everybody knows me, even though they don't know me, they know my name and they know my job and where I work and what I'm doing and all these different things. And it's, uh, it's just a whole other world. I, I can't be isolated in a way. And boy, that just gives me the heebie jeebies, you know, because <laughs> it's not my MO. It's not my mode, which is to be isolated. So at any rate, I'm really having to force myself into a ton of acceptance that the people in this town are idiosyncratic and have their quirks. And I might even go so far as to say they're wackadoodle. And that all being said, I'm absolutely positive that many of them look at me and think I'm exactly like that too. Yeah. So anyway, we all have our stuff and it's helping me to find peace again, to focus on my serenity when I can just accept people for who they are. And that includes accepting people as being someone I don't want to be around or that I feel unsafe around, um, emotionally unsafe around. And recognizing those warning bells and going, oh, I'm just going to remove myself from the situation or find a way to get off the phone or whatever. Anyhow, so I just thought that that podcast was just jam-packed full of totally amazing stuff. And I really wanted to thank you for all of that and for your guest, Julie, and for just bringing it home week after week with all these amazing shows and helping me to see my growth and being a part of my recovery and for the service that you do. I am just super duper grateful. So take care now. Hey Spencer, it's Marissa again. I just realized the other super important thing I was going to say. I'm in my car now and we had quite an adventure on the rest of the walk because my older dog taught the puppy, how to roll in stinky things. So she found this stinky thing to roll in. And so I had to take her to the creek and try to rinse her off. I'm pretty sure I got more wet than she did and she still stinks. <laughs> it's just what it is. But that reminded me because then she, the puppy likes to jump into the front of the truck cab and not the back seat and then get the mud everywhere. And I started to realize when I got this puppy, it was like the worst possible timing. Um, I had all this stuff going on with my schedule and work and different things. And I started to realize, wait a minute, like I'm, I've got this huge complex on my shoulders from growing up with a disease about perfectionism. And that was something that I believe your guest Julie talked about. I started to finally give it up after so many days of bad sleep because of the puppy and this and that. I started to realize I just don't need to be so perfect with how I'm raising this puppy and that actually good enough is okay. She, the puppy taught me that because I haven't been able to pay as much attention to her and do the things I want to do with her as I would have liked. And yet she has blossomed into this amazing dog and her personality's coming out in only after two weeks. And all she really needed was like consistent food and a loving presence and another dog to guide her. And she started to feel safe enough to open up. And that was such a huge gift of realization to me, again, of how far I've come along in my program, that my good enough really is good enough. And how hard I get on myself in these kinds of situations with things like dogs or work or other things. So I really just wanted to acknowledge that This puppy is really teaching me how to love myself, that my good enough is just fine. And I can love myself and accept myself, like I was talking about acceptance earlier, just for being good enough and to let go of that perfectionism. And the closer I get to higher power, the more I feel that unconditional love, that kind of puppy love in a way. I can only imagine my higher power looking at me like this little puppy or kitty And just going, oh, and (laughs) just like I do when I get sucked into this puppy that I have now in the moments when she's not driving me crazy. And so I get to recognize, wait, if I think she's driving me crazy, then what does that really say about me? Actually, my expectations, my perfectionism, my lack of acceptance, that's what's driving me crazy. So actually, I myself am driving my own self crazy. It's really not the puppy. Yeah, using things in my everyday life to continue to learn from and to teach me as part of this program has been one of the absolute gifts and miracles of the program. I'm really glad I remembered that and just wanted to share that last bit. And, uh, now I am on my way to work with two very wet, stinky dogs. And I'm grateful that right now I can bring my doggos to work and that my work hours this week were not a full 40, that they were reduced. Next week will be a full 40 and then after that, just two days, and then I'm off for the rest of the summer. And I am so thankful. <laughs> so, so thankful. Anyways, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Marissa. Upcoming planning with Eric, when we're titling It's Not Your Fault, or he titled It's Not Your Fault. Do you feel like it, whatever it might be, is your fault? Are you criticized, blamed, accused, and sometimes feel responsible somehow for others? Bad choices or behavior? Do you blame and criticize yourself? Do you think that somehow you could have done better? And how do the 12 steps and the tools of Al Anon help? How are you learning to take just the right amount of responsibility for your own decisions and actions? Where do you know it's not your fault? And what are you still struggling with? So that's a biggie. Welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. The other thing that's upcoming, I've gotten some feedback about the last episode on recovery and activism, and I'm holding on to those. I think I'm going to put together an episode with your thoughts, your feedback, your experience, strength, and hope to let your voices speak together, so that's coming. Esther, how can people send us feedback? How can they share their experience, strength, and hope with us?
1: You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of wisdom to know the difference, or any of our upcoming topics, including It's Not Your Fault. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know.
0: Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, which includes notes for each episode, links to the books that we read from, and videos for the music that Esther chose, in this case. Also links to some other recovery podcasts and websites. Yeah, so when you're reading the phone number, I'm thinking that's very United States centric. That phone number doesn't even have (laughs) a plus one on it. (laughs) That's okay. And that is why there's a voicemail button on the website, because you can just use your computer and send it in that way. Or the thing that I've been getting more of lately, and I'm really enjoying this, is record a voice memo on your phone, or I suppose on your computer, but mostly on the phone is so easy and then just email it to us. I love to have voices. I love to have other people's voices. If you feel up to sharing your voice with us, please do. Thanks.
1: We will now take a short break before diving into the mailbag. Our second musical selection available on the website is Horizon by Aldous Harding. I chose this song because I love the intensity of emotion that Aldous Harding has in her singing And the lyrics really speak to the codependence and enmeshment that I remember feeling while I lived with my loved one with alcoholism and addictions. I suppose this is one of the examples of me interpreting a song in a particular way, and it probably is the case that the artist had absolutely no similar thoughts when they were writing this song, but that's how these things go. Some of my favourite lyrics from this are, Let me put the water in the bowl for your wounds, babe let me fill you up with the fingers of love. You can't lose, babe. And for me, that's sort of me doing everything for my partner. Later in the song, I broke my neck, dancing to the edge of the world, babe. My mouth is wet. Don't you forget it. Don't you lose me. Here is your princess and here is your horizon. And for me, that part really speaks to the kind of low self-esteem, but also big ego side of things, calling myself a princess. And then later in the song, it says, and now the sugar's run out, and I don't know what to say. And for me, that was my hopelessness when I was hitting my rock bottom. So I hope you enjoy that song.
0: First, I want to say thank you to all of you who have already written in response to our episode 337, Activism and Recovery I am planning to devote an episode to just those responses because I want to let your voices stand by themselves. Roseanne wrote, fast forward to now, my son is following in his father's footsteps with addiction. He discovered THC as a freshman in college and it has twice triggered clinical depression, a mental illness that his father has battled. And last summer he had his first manic episode and was thus diagnosed as bipolar. It took a long time for him to recover from that. And he was sober that whole time. I thought he finally figured out that THC and his mental illness do not mix, but I was wrong. I suspected that he was smoking again and asked him to take a drug test. At that point, he admitted he was. Given that I have been around the block with this before with his dad, I knew that there was no amount of reasoning, yelling, bargaining, etc. that I could do to get him to see the light. He clearly made the choice despite having been in a psychiatric hospital three times over the past three years, and each episode was preceded by moderate to heavy weed use. After giving a lot of thought, talking with his psychiatrist and psychologist, and my closest friends, I decided to offer him two choices. Live with me and be sober, and I would continue to give him financial support for college, etc. Or live with his dad. His dad would give him financial support. He chose to live with his dad. This broke my heart, as he had been the center of my universe for so long, and I had always put him first. I detached with love. I knew that if I did not do this, my house would be fraught with tension and it would be toxic. Plus, my frustration would be so bad and I would be so worried that it would compromise my health. My son moving out to go live with his dad was certainly a sad day for me, but there were no hysterics that day. I had written him a letter before he made his decision saying how I felt and why. That he was going down the wrong path. Laying out the choices and emphasizing that I would love him always no matter what and that if he was ever in trouble, to never hesitate to contact me. So when he moved out, there really was nothing more to say that I had not already articulated in the letter. We are very close, and I know my son will always love me, too. I wrote the letter because it enabled me to choose my words carefully and convey how I felt as neutrally as possible. No fire and brimstone. My son received it well, but it didn't keep him from deciding to move out, which is, of course, what I expected. He is in the grips of his addiction, and it's really concerning that he is 21 years old. THC is much more potent than it was 20 or 30 years ago, and it is going to adversely affect his still-developing brain. That said, I know no amount of pleading with him will change his mind. His stance is he can smoke moderately, two days a week, and I feel he won't be able to do that. And even if he did, even twice a week is damaging to his brain and puts him at high risk of triggering mania. This is very difficult for me, but his psychologist referred me to some Zoom meetings, and I jumped on that right away. Thank you for writing, Roseanne, sharing your experience and the hard decisions that you had to make to keep yourself healthy. Because as we often say in these rooms, if I'm not healthy, if I'm not safe, if I'm not On balance, it's really hard for me to even help support somebody else. Put my oxygen mask on first, as the saying has it. A listener wrote with a dilemma. My husband and I are separated and live in different provinces. He is an Al-Anon and has a sponsor with lots of recovery years. We are in our mid-60s. I am so frustrated. He is blaming me for his drinking. He was violent. He was physically, sexual, and verbally abusive. He has had numerous affairs. He lost two previously relationships because of his infidelity. His sponsor has read my text to him calling him out on his behaviors. I pray for him. I stay out of his recovery. He is apparently working step four. I am trying to heal from his behaviors. I hope we can reconcile at some point. How can I heal with him still pointing, blaming me and others for his behaviors? I am open to suggestions and willing to try anything. Thank you for writing. The thing that helped me... Most was when I realized that the blaming, the accusations were, are a symptom of the disease, and that my work was to not take them personally, to understand that this was the disease lashing out, protecting itself, that when the alcoholic, the addict has to really admit to themselves, that they are the problem, it's hard, it's painful, and and they don't want to do that. And when they do that, then that's often the first step on the road to actual recovery. At the same time, detaching with love, we say sometimes also, at the same time, I didn't want to put myself in situations that would lead to more blaming and accusations. That's One of the ways in which I had to practice detachment, that's one of the ways in which I had to practice, as we say, not picking up the rope, not throwing the ball back, and sometimes just leaving gently, leaving with love, not with anger, but leaving. Sometimes that was all I could do. It's a tough journey. I'm glad you're on it. You might check out a couple of episodes could relate to your situation, episode 45, about chaos, episode 16, about blame, episode 188, detachment with love, and also episode 285, contentment and even happiness. Toby shared thoughts about isolation. She writes, my experience has been very different from yours, and hearing your experience really helped me understand a different perspective So I thought I'd offer my experience to you and your listeners. It's in two parts because I paused the episode to capture and record my thoughts twice. So here's Toby.
3: Hi, Spencer. This is Toby. I'm listening to your episode on the impact of isolation, and I'm thinking about how it's impacted me. And it has been very difficult for me, but I've had a different response from what you describe I would describe myself as um, introverted or centroverted, although I'm very outgoing with the people I'm close to. I really need my alone time to recharge. But I do feel very isolated if I don't get some interaction outside my family every day that's social, not just attending an Al-Anon meeting, some kind of two-way communication. But unlike what you described, I don't desperately miss the face-to-face communication. I'm fine with long phone conversations or Zoom conversations, and I don't really miss eye contact. And I was thinking about why. And I think part of it is that I am mildly autistic. I'm, I'm on the Asperger's end of the autism spectrum. And eye contact has always been difficult for me. When I'm talking to someone in person, I tend to look at their mouth instead of their eyes. And so I don't really miss the eye contact that much. Although I do sometimes find it awkward on Zoom to be looking at the face of the person rather than my webcam. I agree with that. That can be a little bit awkward, but I'm not missing it as much. So anyway, I just thought I'd share that part of my experience. Hi, Spencer. This is Toby again. Listening to a little more of that episode and thinking about it, I'm thinking I'm starting to understand why people are so desperate to, quote, get back to normal. Your description of your experience really helps me understand that. For me, being an introvert, or a centrovert who's also um, on the spectrum, having a break from constant social interaction has been a huge blessing. Being able to really choose who I interact with and when and mostly do one-on-one interactions or small group interactions has just been such a relief for me. And I am not looking forward to going back to quote-unquote normal because normal means being on, in a way, for me. My my fight or flight kicks in. My anxiety kicks in when I have to be around big groups of people, um, which is something I have to do for my job, which I love my job, but it also kicks up some of my anxiety levels, or when I have to have interactions not on my own terms. It brings up a lot of anxiety and fight or flight for me. It's helping me, listening to what you said is helping me think about myself and why other people are so desperate to get back to normal. I'm loving this, honestly, but I know not everybody feels that way. I just thought I'd uh, continue to share that perspective.
0: And Toby, thank you so much for sharing that, for sharing your different experience, your different perspective, and how that has affected the way in which you respond to this time of isolation. I'm so grateful for a diversity of experience and diversity of opinion uh, expressed here. Thank you. And finally, here's a share from Barb that I somehow did not manage to include in the episode about irritable and unreasonable. That was episode 336.
4: Hi, Spencer. This is Barb. Um responding to your question about uh, when have you found yourself irritable and unreasonable without knowing it? This happens often when I'm either returning home from work or rejoining my family while I'm working from home, but leaving my home office and then going downstairs to rejoin them. It's something about the transition, and it doesn't really have a precipitating event. I just Start to feel irritable, maybe feel like I need some time between working and rejoining my family that I'm not really getting because now I'm staying home to work. Unreasonable in the sense that maybe I get highly critical and sometimes asking for things I don't need. How do I recognize that I am descending into that state of being? It's like a gut feeling, and I feel this change in my demeanor, and there's really no obvious reason why that's happening. And the tools that I use to get out of it and return to serene and reasonable. Uh, a few things. Uh, sometimes it's listening to your podcast, very helpful. It centers me and reminds me that there are tools that I'm not going it alone. Saying the serenity prayer over and over to myself, that helps a lot. It's just I use it. a mantra. Uh, I remind myself of halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired to remember that, yes, maybe there is a reason why, you know, I'm behaving this way. And it's something that comes from my ACA behaviors. The two other things I do is sometimes I read some ACA literature. It will help me. It just grounds me. It takes me out of the spiraling bitterness, discontent, all of that. And then something that's really simple is just stepping away. Just saying, hey, you know, I'm not very good company right now. It's not always easy when you have a you know a young child at home like I do, and you've been away all day in some way and want to help with parenting. But sometimes I just need to step away and take a few deep breaths or just do another task. You know, leaving the room is never a bad choice, I found. Anyway, those are the, some things that I found helpful. Thank you for letting me
0: share. Uh, thank you, Barb. And my apologies for missing it. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, and I am immensely grateful to those of you who have been donating to support it because one of the things that I realized recently is that my computer, which is now seven years old, is getting old. It's not able to do the things as well that I need it to do to keep the podcast going, and because of your support, I'm able to Get a new laptop, which hopefully is coming next week, and and I'm really grateful to to those of you who have continued to support the podcast, just like Barbara, Barry, Dana, Elise, and Frida did for this week. Thank you so much.
1: Our last song selection is "Real Love" by Big Thief, which you can listen to at the Recovery Show slash three three eight. And I chose this song. If this is a very personal one for me, and it was actually. The first one that came to mind for me to choose because it was the one my partner and I were actually playing and singing together when we were essentially both at our rock bottoms, but it gave us a kind of solace and it was very therapeutic and cathartic. The lyrics of the song spoke to issues of emotional abuse that we were actually inflicting on each other in a kind of unknowing way. And there were multiple ways to read the phrase real love but it's actually in a very sarcastic or it's got a subtext let's say because it's not about real love it's about manipulating people based on the idea of real love so some of the lyrics are having a bad week let me touch your cheek I will always love you having your face hit having your lips split by the one who loves you real love real love real love makes your lungs black Real love is a heart attack. And later in the song, the bridge goes cry like a bird, fly like a baby, mama got drunk and daddy went crazy. If your speech slurs, if you feel shaky, meet me out back, I'll be there waiting. So it's an amazing song and an amazing (laughs) band. Wow. (laughs) It's pretty intense, yeah.